civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people. We urgently need financial, political and social innovations that enable us to overcome this structural dependency on growth. We need to change the system. This isn't cleaning up the beaches in the case of plastic a little bit faster. That's vital, that has to be done. But you need to stem the flow. Gosimon explores sustainable change and the women inspiring it. Who are they? What made them who they are? How do they read the world they live in? Our guests share their story, roots, passions and hopes for the future. They tell us more about the alternatives and strategies they developed to tackle climate change. Would it be green to subsidize the rollout of electric cars for individual ownership? Technically, yes, fewer combustion engines means lower carbon emissions. But the battery for each electric car requires a significant amount of cobalt, 75% of which is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, mostly under terrible artisanal conditions. Cobalt is one example among dozens of the future complexities of decarbonization. A recent study by the European Commission concluded that for Europe to fully decarbonize by 2050 will require a massive increase in current world supplies of raw materials in order to build the wind and solar infrastructure needed to power the European Union. 300% of all the germanium currently produced in the world will be required. 40 times the current supplies of indium, gallium, tellurium, cadmium and selenium. The current global production of copper, glass, steel, concrete, aluminium and plastic will need to increase by 20 times, and that's just to decarbonize the EU. This is an extract of a paper titled Carbon Colonies and a Green New Deal, published in Madame Masseur, an Egypt-based media organization written by Omar Robert Hamilton, a filmmaker and writer. In this episode of the podcast, we are hoping to provide you with responses to the following questions. Is the green transition green and is a global low-carbon revolution possible when relying on the extraction and supply of rare minerals and metals? Our simon today is Ong Xiao Liu. Ong Xiao is an independent consultant on policy research, strategic communication and advocacy and a former multiple award-winning journalist. With Ong Xiao, we talked about following one's passion, writing for change, the environmental and social issues with rare earth in China, China as a developing country, and being a female investigative journalist. Hi, Ong Xiao. Hi, Roxanne. My first question is about your roots. I was curious to know where you grew up. I come from a very small city, uh, working class family in uh, southern China. I was the only child, but thanks to that, I got the opportunity to go for higher education, get the best resources the family can offer. Back then, education was very important. I spent most of my childhood studying, not had too much fun there. I was straight A student, spent days and nights working on Olympiad competition, informatics, math, chemistry. Later, I realized that I didn't want to be a scientist. I care more about social injustice. I care more about fairness. I care more about human stories. During my childhood, I would say um, mid-school years, I decided to choose the other way to learn more about literature and social science rather than you know, be a nerdy student. That kind of fit some of the stereotypes of, you know, what a woman should do back then. I, I think it lives today too. Or you do very well in STEM, you know, math and science. Why do you want to study for literature? But again, I guess back then I was very aware of this choice already. And I think for me, it was an informed choice because I didn't care that much about science. I mean, I love science, but I care more about social injustice and being part of it. And being a journalist was a natural choice. The only major that I applied when I passed college entrance exam. I would say on one hand, I'm aware of the stereotype what women, you know, women should go for the more soft science, you know, social science. But I guess I did what my heart told me to do. Was it difficult for you to actually go against the current? Imagine me in a small city where everybody expects, how do I put it, 
in people's mind, the scientists, engineers, you know, they are the jobs, stable jobs, creative jobs, maybe not that creative back then, but good jobs, uh, stable jobs for women. And they would think, well, on one hand, it's difficult for women to get in this field, but since you're already doing well, why do you go for another path? For them, being a writer, being a journalist, it doesn't sound very appearing, especially for my parents and my grandparents. Of course, those are the teachers in my school. There was something in me that is, oh, I choose what I want and I think what I want to do. You can't just talk me out of it. Back then, that was a little bit of struggle, but it didn't turn out to be a big issue for me, you know, to pass the exams, to go to the best universities in China. And eventually, I think they, they would understand because, you know, it's my own life, my own choice. Were your parents uh, supportive of those choices? I had a complicated relationship with my parents, as a lot of young generations, you know, young people from my generation in China. We are probably more about, I wouldn't say we as of the generation who born in the 90s or the late 80s, but at least people, my friends, my the small communities that I'm familiar with, we are more exposed to the outside world. We travel a lot, we have international experience, we speak different language. While my parents and their generation has a different understanding of the world, so of course we have conflict. Of course, we have different understandings about other social values, uh, what is considered a stable job, uh, what is considered as contributing to society. Yes, we have a lot of arguments. But over the years, I think they would come to, to understand, to a, to a phrase, a stage that they would eventually understand that what they wanted to pose on me, what they think as a good life, a good career might not fit me. And the whole point is, you know, make me happy to create an environment that your children would feel happy. I think at this point, they probably getting closer to that conclusion, but not there yet. But I hope one day we'll come to not compromise, but an understanding, a mutual understanding that I appreciate what you expect me to do. I also hope that you could understand, at least appreciate the type of work that I'm doing, the thinking process that I had had to come to this phase of my life, to moving abroad, to choose what I think is a better life for me and to work on issues that I care and I think are important in their mind is to, you know, to be a university teacher, to be a middle school teacher for women or a researcher somewhere you have a stable job, permanent job. But for me, I, I started freelancing since 2015. That sounds unimaginable for people in my hometown and for my parents too. This is what happens in today's world. There, there's intergenerational misunderstandings. Why did you uh, decide to become a freelance journalist specifically? I started my career as a journalist after I graduated from journalism school in China. When I was a student, I already started to cover conflicts, cover uh, environmental issues. Then I worked for the two best news desks in China, Southern Metropolis Daily and the Caixin Media. Back in 2014, after spending four, five years of professional life as a full-time journalist, I already achieved a lot compared to my age. I received a lot of awards. And then at that point, when you talk about journalism, you have to take into consideration of the, the media environment in China, the political environment in China. I realized it was a critical point for me that I had to make a choice whether I want to stay within the Chinese media system to work as a full-time journalist or choose a different format, a different form of career that would enable me to write and research and participate in issues that I care more, where requires longer time investment, research, and also a different formatting of the stories, a different narrative. So back in 2014, I quit Caixin. I was a very promising young journalist receiving a lot of awards, you know, young journalist of the world, best investigation, 24 years old. I received the best investigation in China. I was still the record holder, but again, the question is not staying where you have already achieved, but, you know, moving forward to say where I think my value can be most applied. And I joined an initiative between China Dialogue, a UK and the China-based nonprofit covering environment issues in China. With this initiative, I was able to look into water issues in more depth and produce longer, once say longer, it's 60 pages, 80 pages of research report combined with my investigative journalism skills and policy analysis. For me, it was writing for change. 
It's not just writing to inform, but also writing with a purpose to change. Some people say that solution journalism. Some people say, oh, you just created journalism, you're a researcher now. But for me, it's all about using writing, using investigation, using policy analysis and all the skills I've had to have a best outcome that I can achieve and to participate in the issues that I care I covered water safety in China during this initiative, you know, the bottled water boom in China. Some other stories were also featured in The Guardian, South China Morning Post, and all the other Chinese and international media as a side product of the research. I wouldn't say I regret this choice, but I would have to admit it was not easy to be a freelance journalist. I think it would be difficult for me to go back to be a traditional journalist. I collaborated with a lot of international journalists. Sometimes I put my name, sometimes I chose not to for security and safety reasons. I worked with South African Journalists Network. I worked with African Investigative Journalists Network. I worked with a very international network of journalists. Why I say it's difficult to go back to traditional journalism, the so-called traditional journalism doesn't exist anymore. 10 years, 20 years, you know, you have a traditional newsroom, you do daily reporting or you publish longer investigation for one month, two months. The news cycle has changed so much. The tools have changed so much. The taste of our audience has changed too much. And the way to reach them also changed too much. Our world is so connected. There's nothing called traditional journalism anymore. Everything's revamping. So for me, I think it's all about adapting to the reality and use the best tools, use the best knowledge that I have and be open and willing to collaborate with journalists around the world to to produce stories or, you know, non-profits to produce powerful narratives or research reports that tell us a story but also make an argument to push for policy change. How did you personally become aware of climate change? I guess it, is, it would be a cliche to say that uh, it's all goes inconvenient truth. <laughs> I would say that's probably the, you know, not the Bible, but the enlightening piece for many people. I guess that's the power, you know, of storytelling. But personally, I think why I, when climate change come to, you know, also a layer of my career choice, that was 2010, uh, when I was intern journalist for Caixin. I was covering uh, the Tianjin Climate Talk. That was a pre-talk for the uh, UNFCCC Climate Talk, the annual big conference. I was quite lucky. I was 20 years old back then. I was in that conference room with a lot of, you know, delegations around the world. People were arguing about two degree. Back then, we haven't got the Paris Agreement. Um, back then, it was, you know, one year after the Copenhagen dispute, you know, the, the conference where we didn't really reach a very good agreement to tackling climate change. I was exposed to all this information, huge information about our future. It really made me to think how important the issues, the climate change is, and how ignorant I was about the issue uh, compared to the importance of it. It became a natural choice. I was a journalist. I am interested in climate change, and I covered it. I had also the opportunity to go to the, the COP24, the COP25, um, the COP21, where, you know, back in Paris, we, or we reached the Paris Agreement. It's a long journey. Little by little, I'm more convinced that climate change, climate reporting requires more attention, requires better storytelling, requires more dialogues and conversations across sectors. We have to unsilo them. I'm still doing something about climate change these days. Yes, your primary uh, reporting focus is uh, China's emergence and global impact on uh, the environment, uh, the biodiversity, uh, energy and the climate uh, more broadly. I'd like to talk a bit about your coverage of China as being a major exporter of rare earth. China owns 97% of these resources. And in one of your articles on the true cost of rare earth, you conclude with this sentence, it's time to recalculate the true cost of rare earth in China and the price for a truly sustainable low carbon future. Could you explain the environmental problems posed by rare earth extraction? So rare earth was a hit topic uh, back in the China-US-China trade war, but it has been an issue for China since probably 20 years. The biggest environment issue when we talk about rare earth is the pollution, namely water pollution, soil pollution, also land use change, but also radiation. 
in China, we've witnessed some cancer villages around some of the major rare earth extraction sites. In Malaysia, we're also seeing boycott rare earth refinery facilities because of unsolvable radioactive waste issue. Around the world, it's the same issue. It's a universal issue. When you deal with rares, you can't ignore the water, the soil pollution, the radiation. That's the thing that was born with the resource. But the whole point that I was making back then in the article and in the long research report, Rare Shades of Grey, was not to say, okay, rares is polluting and the wind turbines use rares. Therefore, we should stop using rares and stop, continue to install more wind by to how do I put it, slow down the process of the transition before we can actually find a solution to address the upstream issues. I think the argument, there's nothing wrong with the argument, but the whole point for me as the writer and the researcher of that report is to expose the issue so people can have to confront with it when we talk about low carbon transition. We have to talk about a low carbon transition that is fair and that has justice to everybody involved in the supply chain. We can't build a sustainable future for Europe, for America, for Australia on the cost of people in Malaysia, in China. For me, this is not what I would consider as a fair and just transition. We've also seen lessons on other critical raw materials like cobalt and other conflict minerals in DRC, you know, Central Africa. You know, after years of campaign work and advocacy, we have seen mechanisms and the best practices of addressing these issues in the upstream of the supply chain so that the products Apple's iPhones, iPads containing critical raw materials, especially conflict ones, do not have to be dirty and do not have to feel corruption, do not have to come with a violation of human rights and the labor. It's possible to address these issues, to apply best practice to rares in China and elsewhere too. But unless people are aware that problems exist, they wouldn't take action. And that's, again, back to what I said earlier. That was the power of journalism, of exposing the facts, and then, you know, build on the exposure, you push for change. According to you, a rare earth industry that is environmentally sustainable and socially just is possible? Yeah, that's a very good question. As I said, there's this thing that was born with rare earths, you know, radiation, you can't get rid of it. You have to deal with the radioactive waste at a certain point. But there are different ways to source the rare earths, for example, recycling. We have probably more heavy rare earths in electric waste in United States that are available, economically, financially feasible to explore. There are resources here and there, but, you know, it's expensive if the concentration is very low. That's why the feasibility is very important. I think before 2016-15, there was very limited recycling reuse projects that aiming to recycle the resources from the end products like this. Instead, we encourage this consumption model of, and also production model of here's the new iPhone. In one year, you want a different model. And by doing that, we encourage more consumption. And for me, if you don't recycle, reuse, and if your upstream of the supply chain is polluting and dirty and probably come with other violations of human rights, label abuse, it's not a sustainable consumption model. Either the brands, either the producers, either the consumers should be part of it. Back to your question, is it possible? I think it's possible, but it might come with a cost, as a lot of other important things. Is curving the climate change, the global warming, the temperature change curve possible? Can we limit global temperature change to 1.5 degree? Yes. Can we do it in 2 degree? Yes. But it comes with a cost. So it's the same issue. What do we want the most? A fair transition, a justified transition, or develop the country or maybe not. But here, let's say, two degree uh, climate change comes with the sacrifice of Pacific Islanders, comes with the, the sea level change, comes with the habitat loss of indigenous peoples around the world. Is this a fair transition? If it's not, should we move to a more ambitious 1.5 degree target? So the whole argument for rare earths is the same. 
do we want a cheap, cost-efficient green transition? You know, install wind turbines, bigger ones, lighter ones that relies on rare earth. And would we want more and more EVs, electric vehicles that also use a lot of rare earth and also you know rechargeable batteries? That the lighter ones also use different rare earth elements. Is that what we want to benefit certain amount of people in the world who can enjoy the fruit of the green transition, while other people in China, Malaysia, or probably in the future, the trend of deep sea mining for rare biodiversity sacrifice out there that are at stake? Is that what we want for the transition? I don't have the answer. I think this answer requires first requires thinking from everybody involved in the trade. You have to understand that rares is everywhere. You look into your computer, you look into your phone, you look into batteries. It's everywhere. So it's not an issue that you can ignore. That any individual can say it's not my business. It's everyone's business. How does China consider this problem currently? Is there even consideration, or it's let's favor the economy at all costs, even at the cost of our, the health of our people? And so in this COVID period, uh, we've had many calls for green transition and a Green New Deal. Most of those calls are supported by more investments in so-called green energy. And they rely, those energies rely a lot on rare earth materials, solar, wind panels, etc., which are actually uh, not so environmental friendly from the origin of where they get the minerals to actually build those, those solar panels, etc. Does it exist a green transition? It's a fascinating question. In the carbon market, we talk about carbon leakage. When Europe has this ETS, the emission trade system, there was big concern that because of the carbon price, the heavily polluted industry will move away from Europe to other countries. What China is doing now is preparing to launch its national-wide carbon market, and we have had pilot projects for years. I think the Chinese government is aware of potential leakage and also researchers have been looking to the issue of the world factory made in China shift from China to, you know, less developed countries like Southeast Asia, some African countries where labor is cheaper. I think this is a general trend that is going on about shifting from Europe, America to China and then to Southeast Asia to Africa. I guess the whole point here, what we should be cautious about, this world comes with, there is a mutual choice here. It's not like the colonization back in the 16th and 17th century. It's a mutual choice. And also, we can't ignore that unless the business as usual model is changed, this type of so-called mutual choice will continue. There will always be some poor country willing to open its, its land, its people, to accept a more polluted industry as long as they can generate so-called revenues that they can only save for now the dollar value, but not the health and environmental cost that was hidden behind it. Unless the business usual model is changed fundamentally, unless companies stop shifting purely driven by profit, we will continue to see this wave If not Southeast Asia, it would be Africa. If not Africa, it would be Latin America or some, you know, even islands. It's about decision makers who actually have the power to shift the entire business model to step in rather than to, let's say, to blame or let's say to focus on individual projects, individual countries' choice. The emerging trend right now is still a very small proportion of investment globally that are conscious of environment, social and governance issues and also a responsible investment. Things like this are also emerging where investors, companies, suppliers in the supply chain are willing to address the issue that we just talked about, leakage from one country to the other. Instead of this, investors, big brands, they have to address all issues happening in their entire supply chain. And in this globalized world, it means a company based in Europe will also have to care about the factory in China or the raw material supplier in Vietnam, for example, for cotton. So I think this is probably a solution out, but we need more solution. We also need to scale up the solution to tackle the issue that you just mentioned. 
And when it comes to Rare Earth specifically, Chinese government is super aware of the issue and they have been investing a lot to cleaning up the historical pollutions. The cleaning up actions on Rare Earth has started long, long before this US-China trade war. I remember back in 2014 while I was visiting some of the mines that were already doing restoration projects. For China, this is also a very precious resource that we're talking about. In addition to be the largest exporter of rare earth material, it's also the largest consumer of rare earth. We have, you know, on one hand, we the world factory where we're manufacturing a lot of components for wind turbine, for battery, this and that. But also the economy growth in China, the transition that is happening in China is the largest ever in the world. China is the biggest carbon emitter in the world right now. And it aims to cut its carbon emission by 2030 and it aims to achieve the target as early as possible. Rare is, is a strategic resources for China for its own green transition. So cleaning up, it's important. You know, in China, the basic principle is polluters pay, like many other countries. It's the polluters who pay. But given consideration to the historical damage and also the black market, I, I didn't mention that earlier, the rare earth boom in the 1990s and early 20s resulted to widespread illegal mining, especially in the southern part where heavier rare earths are more concentrated and where it's more difficult to monitor the illegal small-scale, very, very scale, small-scale mining. So these damages are paid by the government. They are doing different restoration projects to develop a new business model for local residents. For new pollutions, it has to be paid by the polluters. However, interestingly enough, uh, you should also understand that China has consolidated all its rarest industry within uh, six state-owned enterprises. The idea is that being a state-owned enterprise, you are a big entity and you should show more responsibility uh, in your supply chain, in your decision-making compared to small businesses, You know, at least in the Chinese context. That's the logic uh, how government thinks. So by consolidating the rarest industry to SOEs, they hope they would address the environmental issue a little bit more, at least a more solid, more uh, fundamental, more thoroughly compared to previous little small-owned business. But again, we also have to admit a lot of the pollution is also caused by SOEs. So I guess there's good intention. There's also very high uh, political will from the central government to address the rarest issue, not only as a strategic resource to its manufacturing industry, to its own green transition, but also to address the hidden costs, the drawbacks of the environment and health costs. China has been solely bearing for the world in the last 20, 30 years. Are you noticing, is there a rise of a movement in China challenging the destructive consumption ethic which drives the fossil fuel economy and also the green economy? Because really your research and many other researchers looking into it, turns out the green economy might be as polluting as the fossil fuel economy. We need consumption, we need new iPhones, as you were saying, we need a new car, we need to go to go a bit further. Is there even talks around degrowth, like the idea that we may be able to function in a system where things don't grow, really? We don't pursue economic growth. I doubt the argument that the green economy will be more polluting or as polluting as the fossil fuel industry. I've seen researches like this, but even though I did research myself on rares and you know other green conflict minerals, I still believe, based on evidence and you know, life cycle analysis, that green technologies, especially the energy solutions, EVs, wind turbines, you know, renewables, energy efficiency improvements, especially, are less polluting and can generate more jobs and can boost more economic growth in the future. As I said, we can't ignore the polluting some of the polluting elements in this supply chain. I think it will be difficult to sell this idea to China at, least at this point because for China is that we're still the biggest developing country in the world. It might sound shocking for you living in Australia, seeing a lot of you know Chinese migrants buying luxury bags and also for me in France, big amount of Chinese tourists come to buy, 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 buy everything. They buy out luxury shops. 
the reality is we are still, till today, the biggest developing country in the world. I recall the Premier Li Keqiang was saying actually a few days ago during the state conference, the national conference, he confirmed that China is still the largest developing country in the world. We still have 600 million poor people who live with 1,000 RMB monthly income. That translates to 140 US dollars per month. That's the reality in China. And even the average per capita annual income is not that high. It's 30,000 yuan, 30,000 RMB. That's roughly 4,200 USD per year. And we're talking about annual income. We're not talking about the monthly income. Degrowth will be a very challenging, uh, discouraging concept for China as, as the country is still struggling to... Of course, China has did a fantastic job in the last 30 years to remove a lot of the extreme poverty. Uh, actually, it was one of the biggest contributors to the back then was poverty goals. China did a fantastic job in solving extreme poverty and now it's still working hard to move some of this poor people, the 600 million poor who live with 140 US dollar monthly income to what we call, in China we call it aware of society. We're not as developed as in France, as in Australia, as in the United States. And degrowth is unimaginable for this phrase of the development. However, I do think consumption behaviors are changing in China, that we are witnessing movements of, let's say, zero-waste movements in China, especially in big cities. Again, as, as I just illustrated, we have 6 million poor, but we also have uh, an emerging middle class. For different classes, different groups of people, they behave differently, and their emergent needs are also different. I also did this zero-waste challenge you know, for one month, I back in Beijing, I had a decomposition dustbin to put all my organic waste so I can use them to water my flowers. There are movements going on. There's also organic movement. There's also urban farming movements. You can find everything that you're seeing in the Western world in China. What you're saying is that it's limited to the happy few, the ones who have access already. It's the same question to ask to raise in Australia or in France too. You can't talk to the Gilets to say, okay, we need the growth. They are still struggling to make a living. So the question before inequality can be addressed, we, we can't really talk about degrowth, at least in a, you know, a package. Degrowth also carries ideas about better distribution of wealth. And I guess there's a lot to do in terms of communicating uh, what degrowth is. There's a lot to debunk about this idea. The first thing people think when you say degrowth is generally that they earn less money and that uh, they will need to give up their comfortable way of life, uh, including their cars, including many, many other things. But I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as well on, on what it is. Uh, degrowth talks a lot about how to address inequalities, the extreme disparities of wealth. And uh, this is more, I think, uh, about uh, redistribution and coming up with a system that just does tackle uh, really inequalities of our societies. Reducing consumption, obviously, this comes with it. I mean, the degrowth movement is questioning that race for GDP and that race for consumption, consumption, consumption. In that sense, we do have, at least I've seen a, a lot of discussions about what, what we call quality growth. There are a lot of reflection about what kind of growth we want. It's probably not degrowth. We don't probably use that degrowth, as I said. It's, it would be a challenging concept. But what is quality growth? Do we still want to generate more GDP by introducing more uh, polluting industries from elsewhere to China or, you know, from cities to more poorer villages? Or do we want to just rule out all these polluting industries and build our economy in a more reframed structure, you know, instead of trading for 7% of GDP growth? But let's say we can also be satisfied with 4% if we don't have to pay, you know, for the hidden cost of environment and the health. In China, we have this whole discussion about the ecological uh, civilization, where, you know, according to the slogan, where the sky is blue, where the water is clean, where the grasses are, are green. I think China has also come to, after 30, 
40 years of very fast growth. And it's also natural that China come to the point that it treasures the natural resources, the environment, as well as economic growth. We are not there yet to put environment in front of economic growth, even though that's the slogan of the political propaganda. It's in implementation. It's still very difficult to say that happened. I read uh, in an article published by Investor Intel that there were concerns on the Chinese water crisis. And this is very intertwined with the problem of resources uh, because apparently in the past 25 years, 28,000 rivers and waterways have disappeared across China. Uh, but at the same time, water is absolutely instrumental in producing these rare earth, cleaning up the stones, making the minerals come up, etc. It needs uh, a lot of water. Have you heard about this problem? Do you have insights about what the, the Chinese government is proposing to fix it? Water pollution is a very big issue in China. Back in 2012, I did a big cover story of drinking water safety in China and received a huge response from not only the public, but also the government. Of course, I did research on rare earths, but I, I also want to say that, to be fair, rare earths in other mining sectors are not the biggest polluter of water in China. To be fair, the biggest industry is textile industry, where one-third of the chemicals that are produced in the world goes to the textile industry. The water scarcity, and as you said, water are disappearing. For many people, water scarcity was never an issue, especially those who live in the urban areas where they open the tap. There will be water coming out, there will be fresh, uh, safe water come out, and they can drink, uh, they can use, they use shower and the bath. Water scarcity doesn't seem to be a problem. Even in Beijing, Beijing is one of the most water scarcity cities in China where we have to build an entire south-to-north water transfer project to supply fresh water from the south to the north in order to supply water, fresh water, for millions of people there for daily uses, and also to support the industry and the agriculture. And, uh, of course, it's taking a lot of actions on that front, but again, it comes back to the development model. It comes back to the business model that uh, we rely on. How many people can daily consumptions of each individual family use? Not many, right? The biggest consumers are the industries, are the agricultures. So unless business models are changed, unless the water-intensified producing procedures are innovated, unless some of the unnecessary uh, repetitive consumption products are stopped from producing, or unless we innovate more technology to address these issues, we will have to deal with scarcity. And with climate change, the situation will just get worse. I interviewed Jojo Meta. She's one of the co-founder of not-for-profit organization called Stop Ecocide. And they are looking at criminalizing ecocide, crime against the environment. Do you think that could be a leverage against business practices that really fight very strongly against aligning their practices to be more considerate of the environment? That sounds a very inspiring and innovative way to address the issue from the criminal aspect. I've seen similar cases, for example, on climate change, young generations like young kids suing the United States government for not taking actions. I acknowledge that seeking for justice through the legal systems, especially national and international legal system, might be a solution. But I guess the challenge here is we actually lack at least on water, very good international law to govern international water and also national behaviors. You know, you can't really sue, I don't know, China or Nepal or other countries for not being responsible with their water use. It would be difficult to find the legal ground, but I think that sounds to be a, an emerging topic in the space where people talk about, especially international transboundary rivers. China has been involved in a lot of these conversations because, you know, to start with, China is the water tower for South Asia and Southeast Asia with the Himalaya, you know, a lot of glaciers. China is the source of big transboundary rivers in the region. And also China shares transboundary waterways with Central Asian countries, with Russia, with almost all its neighbors. There are cases, a lot of legal discussions, but it's more about the water location. 
how upstream and downstream countries can work together, for example, on information sharing, on better location of the water. As I said, it will be challenging on the current international legal system to seek for accountability of irresponsible use of water, be it China or other countries. Uh, women workers are often the main victims of environmental pollution uh, that affect their health. Is there some consideration in China about protection of the environment and the regulation of polluting industries through a gendered lens? Well, technically, China has signed the International Convention of Women's Rights. But as many other countries who have signed this international convention, a mainstreaming gender lens, gender perspective, in especially high-level political decision-making, is still very lacking probably partially answered your question. And in my own work, yes, I agree, I've seen a lot of female workers who are exposed to the risks of, uh, you know, toxic chemicals, but less protected compared to their male co-workers, and they also learned less. I think mainstreaming gender perspective, it's something that we have to do, not only in China, but also to companies, especially the international companies based in, I think, in Europe, in US, where it has higher pressures for them to address gender issues in their supply chain, could have very big role to play in solving issues here in China and other developing countries. Coming back to your personal journey, did you happen to face sexism, racism while doing your job as a journalist and defending your ideas? Yeah, I, 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 I lost account of how many times. And so I stopped counting. I think to start with, being a female investigative journalist itself is not easy. And it was unusual in China. However, I was lucky that I had the chance to work with uh, Caixin, working in Caixin, working in China Dialogue, where the news house was led by, by female chief editors, but also because they're female, but also because the idea that they have been spreading and also the practice that they encourage young female journalists to take the initiative to do investigations. Growing up, I think I came across more sexism than probably in my professional life. I was never encouraged to um, be a journalist. I was never encouraged to perform well in science, uh, even though I actually performed very well. You know, when you get into high school, you have chemistry, even though you did very good in math and physics in middle school, you, you wouldn't be good at chemistry, which I turned out to be very good at, because you're a woman. And what hurts me the most was, as I said, I have a complicated relationship with my parents and with my family. They would say, I recall, yeah, you did very well, but you're not a boy. So, of course, I came across them all the time. I also came across very tiny details. I think it's, now I think it's quite funny. Because of my name in Chinese, it's, not, it's quite neutralized. It's not like Roxanne in French. Oh, okay. My name is, you can't really tell it's male or female. And all the time I receive emails, requests or invitations, or even readers write to me addressing Mr. Liu. Mm, assuming you're male. Oh. I just never came to their mind that a female can also be, could also be writing hardcore investigations and yes. could also be working on change-making topics, write researches like that. There's nothing much I can do with that. There's a lot of things that I can do with myself to be yeah. a better person, to be a better female, and to encourage and to support younger female journalists who might face fear, who might face mm -hmm. in encouragement when they decided to take the career. So I think this, you know, not really generation by generation, but, you know, this type of encouragement within the female community is very precious, and I hope to pass it to others. I shared with you before this interview two articles. The first was published in The Guardian and titled China Abandons GDP Target for First Time in Decades Amid Great Uncertainty of Virus. You've talked about the questions that were starting to emerge in China about that quality growth concept that is uh, coming up in the political speech a bit more. Do you think it's just contextual, though? Do you think it's just because of that really specific time of a pandemic and it will resume very quickly when that is sorted, if, if it ever gets sorted? As many China watchers or policy researchers, I was surprised, but not surprised at the same time when China announced no GDP target 
before the two meetings, the MPC meeting, a lot of guests would be trying to lower the GDP growth target instead of not publishing. So, as I said, we were surprised because it's the first time. We we're no, also no surprise because China has, in the last few years, been signaling quality growth target over pure GDP evaluation. And this time, again, Li Keqiang was saying, our premier was saying, if our targets of protecting jobs, livelihood, and the market entities can be achieved, we will be able to achieve a positive economic growth rate in 2020. I guess it's probably not a one-time thing. It's probably a natural choice also for the decision makers because what's the point of making a GDP growth target that you can't achieve? One thing you should know about Chinese politics is when they make a target, they have to achieve it and they will do everything to achieve Mm. it. So with all the uncertainties of the pandemic, it's also a wise move to not to set the GDP growth. Having said that, it's very unusual because this year, before they announced the no target target, a lot of analysts were saying it was very difficult for China to not publish a GDP growth target because this year, 2020, was set to be the examination, the evaluation year for our years of construction towards a world of society. You understand the logic of Chinese political making. They When they set 2020, as the examination year, which means the year that we achieve the target we set years and years ago to build the world of society, they have to achieve it. You say the government is more realistic. They prefer to stick with reality rather than to force themselves to meet a target that they probably wouldn't be able to hold. That's interesting. Compared to the 2008 financial crisis, China also issued 4 trillion RMB stimulus plan to recover the economy. And this year, after the pandemic, there's also this 4 trillion RMB, 559 billion USD worth of cost cut. The format has changed. It's no longer investing in big infrastructure projects or investing in real estate high-speed trains, but actually to cut the cost of struggling factories, small business, and tax relief. So you can also say the mindset of what the economy needs from the government is also changing. It's not just giving you money to spend, but also to help the economy to recover, to build, relying on their own resilience. We are in a very interesting time, not only in China, but also around the world. A very interesting time where the pandemic revealed a lot of hidden crises. Absolutely. That were not seen because of decades of high-speed growth. In the United States, it's racism issue. In China, it's social inequality. The second article was published in Foreign Policy, and it was about U.S.-China trade. The report was titled, China puts the final kibosh on Trump's trade deal. That trade war is going worse by the day, by the week. Do you envision some geopolitics troubles uh, in the future, leading possibly to violent conflicts with the worsening of that trade war? It also highlights China will soon overcome the US, if not already done, you know, in terms of economic power. Do you fear that this could turn into an actual war? In today's world, armed conflict is too costly. And we've heard a lot of discussion already about where the third world war and in what format. Trade war was often referred one of the formats of the World War Three because in this globalized world, cutting the trade flow is as damaging as armed conflict, if not more damaging. Having said that, China did increase its budget for military year by year. I wouldn't say it's a preparation for armed conflict between China and US, but also for a lot of own national security uh, considerations. And also, you know, China has its border issues with India. We also have the China-Taiwan issue, the Hong Kong issue. So, so I would naturally say that's a signal to be interpreted to be a preparation for war, armed conflict with the US. But general preparation for this police state that we are all aware of, how it reacts to domestic international conflicts. 
How do you keep being hopeful for the future? This is a recurring question in the podcast. I know you live and breathe climate change pretty much every day and the environment and the problems that go around it. What keeps you positive about the future? <laughs> It's uh, caught me. I, I, it's difficult, I guess, for people who work on all these issues, you know, biodiversity, seeing species disappearing day by day, climate change, where agreements are already made, but actions are so slow. It's difficult to stay optimistic. If I have to say that would be seeing all the innovations going on around the world, people who are motivated to apply their skills, their knowledge to solve the problems we're facing today, small innovations, big innovations, all of them, all of them counts. Also a lot of individual behavior change. I know people will say, what's the point of I stop using plastics if big companies and the government do not announce regulations or looking for alternative uh, solutions. Of course, that's one thing we should aim for systemic change, but individual choice also counts. All that has together fueled my optimism, even though I'm not a very optimistic uh, type, but I guess at least it keeps me hopeful. Would you have a book, a film, a cultural reference you would like to recommend to our listeners, something that inspired you? Yeah, I have a book to recommend. It's called The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State from the Council of Foreign Affairs, uh, Foreign Relations, I think, between the United States. The author is a China expert and has been writing a lot about environmental movement in China and how the politics on environment protection, conservation evolved in the last 10 years and also what has changed under Xi Jinping's reform. Thank you very much, Hong Xiao, for your time and your words around your work and your opinions on China. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you found this interview interesting, inspiring, thought-provoking, please share it around you or leave us some likes on podcast platforms. It helps amplifying our guests' voices and they deserve to be heard. Editing of this episode is by the fantastic Karen Crossan and transcript by the extraordinaire Alicia Van Ziel. Thank you to them and see you in two weeks.